Hello, everyone, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Emily Hutchinson. And I'm your co-host, Michelle Krasavitsky. And we are here with Andrew Noseworthy. Thank you so much for being here, Andrew. Hey, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We are super excited to talk to you. Can you introduce yourself and what you're studying? Sure, yeah. So my name is Andrew. I'm a composer and guitarist among many other many other kind of guises and uh, my degree at Western is a PhD in music composition. That's really cool so music composition so how do you go about writing your pieces of music do you sit down <laughs> with a piece of paper or what goes into that because I've personally never done anything like that how do you how do you make music? Oh god where do we, where do we start? <laughs> um, let me see if I can think of the simplest, the simplest answer for that. I mean, uh, I think at one time when I first started, it stemmed a lot from uh, like playing and I would have like an instrument, like an instrument in my hand and I would like demo things and then write it out or record things like, like take that kind of approach. Um, and after a certain point, it ended up depending on what kind of music I was creating, it ended up being uh, still writing things down, but mostly using uh, like notation software for it. Uh, and I mean, now, even though I play a lot of guitar and I do write a lot for guitar and that's where everything kind of started, I write so much for things that are not guitar. So oftentimes when somebody asks me, you know, like, what does a PhD in music composition entail? I think like actually one of the simplest answers is learning how to like write well, besides developing your own like artistic voice, whatever that means, uh, learning how to write well for things that you can't play. I think that's a very like simple answer. So I, and I actually, I should say too, I actually don't like pen and paper. I'm like a, in an oddity of composers for that. And it's mostly just because I have awful handwriting. So I've tried it before and it's just, it's a computer for me. Like I hate writing anything by hand. So, yeah. That's very interesting. As someone who went through the Royal Conservatory of Piano, I'm kind of getting flashbacks to theory where we had to um, write about, write for violins and things like that. And so is that what you're focusing on in your main project? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of all over the place at this point, or there's kind of a lot of moving parts with my big final project. But yeah, it's, there's definitely... Uh, there's definitely violins. There's definitely because uh, it's my final dissertation piece is a is a sort of electric guitar concerto. So there's a, there's a small orchestra plus electric guitar. Everyone's amplified. There's kind of like live electronic processing. So so yeah, I mean a lot of it is notated music, and the and the PhD in composition is very much focused towards a contemporary classical style, which sounds kind of like an oxymoron, but uh, but yeah, it's a lot of things are all notated and it's for a lot of classical instruments. So, yeah. That's, that's really cool. Can you go into a little bit more about that oxymoron classic and contemporary? How do those yeah. two meet? Oh, oh my God. All these questions could have like entire courses built on them, but like, yeah, like, um, okay. So how do I answer this the quickest way, uh, or the simplest way. So, uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, like classical music now, let's put it this way, classical music right now still pretty much exists in terms of like it's still being written. In fact, I would even argue that there's more 
composers writing more music that gets played more or like there's especially much more diversity in it as well since the second world war than there's ever been throughout the rest of time at least from what we know from like history right so a lot of time if you say like classical music to say somebody who's not deep within it they might think about like some of the real classics like throughout the hundred years of history like all the kind of classical canonic masters of sorts right and somewhere along the line at the same time as pop music becoming very mainstream uh classical music became not very mainstream essentially and everything after that point often gets called contemporary classical music or a lot of people use the term new music sometimes which is also kind of not super helpful in a lot of ways because a lot of contemporary classical music doesn't really besides the fact that it's oftentimes notated and it involves classical instruments, violin, piano, winds, whatever, um, and people have classical training when they go into playing it, a lot of the music doesn't really sound very classical. Like it sounds uh, much more on the experimental side, unless somebody is like following like a neoclassical direction or something like that. So it's, yeah, it's kind of like a complicated term to explain sometimes because it's like, Every time I get on a plane and I'm like working on something on my laptop or something like that, and I get the question, oh, like, what are you doing? Or what do you do? Or what music do you do? It's always like, okay, how long do you have? Or like, how much do you want to know? And I try to be very mindful about like not taking up loads of space in a conversation or like talking somebody's ear off. And uh, it's really hard to do that while also answering that question, <laughs> as you can tell probably. So, well, this is your time. This is your podcast. It's really great to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so can you speak a little bit more to the presence of electric guitar in, I guess, what we would call contemporary classical music? Yeah, sure. So um, the, the electric guitar is kind of a strange thing in, in contemporary classical music, or it's, it doesn't have a very long canonical kind of history, um, even less so than some other things that don't have as much as you would think. So uh, and really some of this is involved with the, with my writing and my dissertation. And I'm also teaching a, an online course uh, about this topic, like in late March. Uh, so it's history really only strongly exists from like the sixties or seventies kind of onwards. I mean, the electric guitar has only really existed since the thirties, forties, fifties, depending on who you ask. Right. Um, I mean, it's more of a pop and rock instrument, right? Like it kind of ends up being a lot more in that. So Long story short, it's development within a lot of contemporary classical. At the very beginning, it seemed to be more of like a stylistic or genre reference kind of thing. A lot of classical composers bringing in influences of jazz or rock or pop music. So they would combine an electric guitar with flute and violin and, and like these kinds of things. Uh, or like electric guitar with a string quartet or something like that, you know. Um, and much more recently it's become more of like a place for like sonic experimentation so a lot of a lot of electric guitar music for written in a contemporary classical style for the past 20 to 25 years or so the guitar ends up not really sounding like a guitar like it's doing it's using lots of effects it's swelling notes via like a volume pedal it has loads of echo on it it's it's not playing any kind of standard stuff. It's more so making noise and adding texture, really. So it's a very reduced way of, of following it, so. 
And would you say this is something unique to contemporary classical music, or does the presence of, of electric guitar across most genres kind of occupy a similar purpose in space? Mm, yeah, good question. I'd say it's essentially pretty unique. There's there's only a couple examples I can really think of off the top of my head where the guitar ends up occupying the same kind of space of being like a textural instrument. And in all those places, it's kind of already overlapped anyway. Like, I mean, if you think about rock or pop music, like some classic examples of bands that use the guitar on like a textural role might be like the Talking Heads or mm -hmm. like uh, Radiohead or like something like that. But all those bands were really influenced by contemporary composers as well as the rock music of the time as well. So there's kind of a lot of bleed over and stuff. You're talking about the guitar as a, a textural role. What roles do other instruments play? I haven't really thought about them, but they do each add like a separate element. Can you talk a little bit about what each instrument does? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, it really, it really depends on, on the instrument. I mean, classically uh, or like, you know, like throughout history, a lot of uh, things are usually operate around like range and around like the sound of the instrument you know so like if you take if you take a number of string instruments let's say uh let's say like violin viola cello and double bass or something like that just as an example the violin is usually something that has the melody or is kind of leading of some kind even in old orchestras without conductors the first violin would be a concert master that's like quasi conducting the group like in baroque orchestras um so you know the violin gets that uh, the viola and cello usually end up having some sort of supporting role. The viola is filling in kind of some middle middle range roles. The cello is playing the bass. The double bass is like its name implies. It's doubling. It's doubling that. It's thickening thickening the whole sound, right? And um, a lot of other instruments get that as well. You know, like flute might be something that gets a melody. Uh, bassoon is something that would get a bass line. Uh, piano is kind of this master yeah. instrument of sorts, or it gets called that a lot because it can do all at one time or it can just do a certain thing that's missing. Um, so there's kinds of a, a lot of roles like that. And I mean, a lot of interesting pieces nowadays kind of challenge or like flip those roles on their head or have everybody doing one specific role, like everybody being a textural kind of, kind of voice within the, within the whole sound. But uh, yeah, it usually involves like playability and range and stuff because the last thing I'll, I'll mention on that that's kind of interesting sometimes is with the exception of certain genres, like let's say jazz or something, brass instruments don't bear, like very often in classical music don't have a big lead role within the orchestra. They're basically brought in when things need to be really loud or they're brought in to like support something else that's already happening to really bring it up to its like climax or something. They're not like handling the melody or a bass line all the time as another example. So yeah, so like playability as well as range and stuff I think influences that. To add on to that, to Amelie's great question, um, would you say that kind of guitar in contemporary classical music changes the composition of the other instruments? For instance, if we were to look at a pre-1960s classical piece of music, if we wanted to add electric guitar, would we then have to change the compositions of the other instruments or can it 
kind of be added on independently? Oh yeah, that's another great question. That that also so depends on like so many things. Uh, I mean, I would say it does change it or it, it can very much change it. Um, but one interesting way or direction I could go with like an answer to that is that oftentimes when it gets, let's, let's say added to something pre 1960 or, or whatever, early 20th century before or something like that, a lot of times people don't approach it in a way where it does change it. Like you get so much examples of this kind of pop style neoclassical music that gets popular sometimes, you know, like, I don't know, Metallica playing with a symphony or like Ingmar Malmsteen or like people like that, or like Trans-Siberian Orchestra, like, you know, those kinds of examples where they just are kind of mashed together and, and they just do their thing and nothing really changes. But, um, but I'd say there is a lot of examples of it does really change, uh, like on a more, in, on a more smarter level, like it does, it does change everything because it covers a different range. It covers a different sound world. And one of the biggest issues that I'm finding with my piece, for example, like my dissertation piece is that when you have a whole group who's unamplified and then you have one or two instruments that is amplified, unless you amplify everybody or unless you find another way to kind of handle it, it usually makes them sound very jarring together. Like they're in like different spaces or different, different uh, worlds. So if someone is thinking about it very smart in a smart way, then yeah, they do change it, but it's not always the case for better or for worse, you know? I have a question about your dissertation actually. So you said that you're writing a piece of music, which is really cool. And then you also have to write something along with it. Is it a commentary? Is it an analysis? Can you take us through what, what that entails? Yeah, 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 for sure. It's um, yeah. So it's, it's a piece, the PhD in composition basically involves a piece and then a short paper about it. Um, and overall the length, the length of the whole thing would be a similar length to a, um, a, like a final thesis that would be just a paper, let's say, like if you were doing like a final thesis and anything else, your final paper might be somewhere like hundred to 150 pages or something like that. And my final paper will be that length, but half of it will be the piece and half of it will be the actual paper about it. Like the final document will be something like that. And um, like performance doctoral students, for example, will also have a similar thing where they have to do a recital and then they have to do a paper about something else as well. And the paper ends up being something shorter, like more around the 50 to 75 page mark or so. Uh, and it's the same thing with me, but yeah, the, the, pa the paper is about, is about the piece, uh, mostly like an analysis of it, but also kind of like a historical kind of overview of its, of its kind of context, just various things like that, really. And to just get a sense of where your specific research and dissertation sits in the context of um, this movement, is it more experimental or do you find yourself moving with the sensibilities of the current genre and current direction? Mm, yeah, um, it's kind of like both, to be honest. It's kind of like, it, it kind of straddles like both to an extent. And that's kind of a big influence for the, for the piece, like for the music in the, in the piece as well, is that 
uh, like as a player and as a musician, I've, I've spent like a lot of years playing a lot of different things and working in a lot of different things. Like I've been involved with some pop production before I've played in like R&B groups. I, when I was throughout high school, I was playing in a lot of like hardcore and punk bands. So I've really jumped all over the place as a, as a musician. I always have. Um, so the piece kind of handles that in an extent and like some movements are very clearly uh, rock influenced. And then some other ones are much more experimental. Like the first movement in it is all based on uh, like feedback. So the guitar is not even really playing any notes. It's just getting different kinds of feedback. And then the orchestra is responding to that. But then there's another movement where one of the percussionists basically plays a drum kit and the double bass player switches to an electric bass. And it's basically like a like a rock groove. So it's it's kind of all over the place, to be honest. I don't know. I guess I'm not satisfied being in, in one place all the time, maybe. I just want to know, how did you get here? What When did you start <laughs> writing music? Were you a kid? Were you a teenager? Has this been a lifelong passion of yours? What, what's been the trajectory of your music career? Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of... Um, there's, there's some non-standard parts about it. And then there's some, some standard parts about it as well. So I couldn't read or like read music or, or I wasn't like properly or formally trained until I was like a little bit older, actually. So I was, I was self-taught probably until I was uh, 18 or 19 or so. And I started playing guitar when I was 12. Uh, and I started writing songs for bands I was playing with when I was 15 or 16. So, um, so it's not like I was, uh, taking piano lessons since I was like really young. I really wish there's so many days where I really wish that was the case, but it just didn't, that didn't end up happening. Um, so, and I think place plays a lot into it as well. So like I grew up in, uh, in Labrador city or Labrador West in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, most people don't know where that is, but it's, it's basically farther East and North of Quebec. So it's actually not even the Island of Newfoundland. It's on the mainland. And without diving too much into it like that place is so isolated and there's nothing to do and there's not another town around for a seven hour ride down a dirt road and there's only 10,000 people there and it's all built on an iron ore mine so it's like there's not really anything to do and there's not really a lot of music there's not really a lot of um there's not really a lot of different or variation I'll say in like arts and culture and stuff uh even though they try to do it and people try to do things there um really the only musicians that are there with the exception of a couple of piano teachers and things are there's like pub bands. That's really it. Like nobody is there making original music, definitely not original classical music or anything. So I think a big part of the trajectory was that I always was like really curious because I just had so much time on my hands and so, like nothing to do. So I was just always on the internet trying to find whatever new thing that I could basically. Um, so that kind of influenced the trajectory because I started playing guitar when I was young and I was playing a lot of rock and metal and things like that. And then I discovered more contemporary classical music when I was older and then I pursued that. And since then, uh, I lived in St. John's, Newfoundland, where I did my undergrad. I did my master's in New York and then I'm doing the PhD here at Western. So I've kind of jumped all over the place to the next thing. So that's like a nutshell of that. So. That's 
a very interesting kind of pipeline from punk to contemporary classic. Um, just about the places you've lived, because they are just so different from uh, Newfoundland <laughs> yeah. to New York to Toronto. Um, I know New York had um, a very vibrant indie rock scene back in mm -hmm. the in the early 2000s uh, with the Strokes and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. And so how would you say that living in these different places, has that impacted your approach to music or your outlook on music at all? Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. It really has, uh, it really has because um, in a big way I'll, I'll say, or one approach I say is like, it's really affected how I view like assess accessibility in music or how I think about accessibility within my music or other music or just music in general and I mean now that's especially a very complicated question and topic with the with the pandemic still ongoing and how that's affected uh like art sectors and stuff in Canada and the world and the states um but living in the different places really made me think a lot about that because I mean until I was like in my uh 20s I wasn't really going to a lot of concerts like the only time I ever go to a concert was when I happened to be on a family vacation somewhere bigger right so there's people who grow up in in bigger cities or even in places outside of cities that are regularly going to see a lot of their favorite music live as they're growing up sometimes or or seeing local music or, or various things like that and i didn't besides the band that i had at, at a certain time and maybe one or two other high school bands there wasn't really a lot of that like in labrador so i didn't get to see a lot of like my favorite music until i was older and then I went from nothing to basically like oversaturation to like literally like a million concerts every single night and you could go see whatever you want to see at any given time. Right. So it's, it's been very strange because it's like um, it's made me think a lot differently about like the context of whether something is uh, like accessible or not, uh, or who listens to something or who something is for. I know this is very, um, it's very vague, but it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely affected that. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird question. I mean, the last thing I'll say on that is like, when I was in St. John's, for example, there might be a concert every couple months of something that's like very contemporary classical music in New York. If you like only one specific corner of contemporary classical music, cause there's a lot of different styles and flavors you could go see a concert that has just that twice a week if you wanted, right? So it's very kind of strange, but yeah. So you've talked a little bit about how places you lived influences you. Uh, can you talk about any artists that have really influenced your work and role models that you might have? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me see. Uh, I mean, one, one thing I go back to regularly is... Um, I go back to the band King Crimson a lot or anybody who's associated with, with them um, just because they've like evolved over a long period of time and they've constantly like changed. Um, and they're one band that like I was super into when I was in high school that I could still feel like a sort of, a sort of connection to them. So something like that. Uh, a lot of things these days end up being like peers or other people that I'm involved with. So um, a lot of the people that I did my master's with in New York, I still regularly collaborate with. And there's a number of people in Toronto that I regularly collaborated with over the last little bit. So like a lot of those people end up being uh, role models or 
influential in some kind of way because you're working kind of like growing together. Um, yeah, over the years, it's, it's become less about like certain kinds of pillars of either your instrument and what you do and more about kind of the people that you're directly involved with, I guess. And as we're reaching kind of the end of our fascinating conversation, we've really spoken about, I guess, the contemporary space. I'm wondering about the future because it sounds like this, um, th this genre is just about a half a, a century old. Do you sense or predict a, a more um, prevalence of things like synthesizers or more electric instruments? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's, that's a hard, it's a hard question because a lot of weird things over the past hundred years or over the 20th century could be claimed to have influenced like the direction of that genre or the direction of classical music in general. But I will say that if I were to like name down a couple of things or nail down a couple of things, some of the big kind of directions where things are going is actually in like interdisciplinary kind of work. So a lot of composers who are like quote unquote composers who are also making visual elements of their piece or like interactive elements of like their music in some kind of way, whether that be like very subconscious or very conscious. Um, there's also like a very big move, uh, which is really good towards um, like intersectional kind of approaches. So like a lot of um, a lot of music that involves parts of like people's culture that's not originally from like a classical kind of place and it's no longer this kind of um like fetishizing take on it it's actually coming from a more sincere kind of place or from an actual lived experience so there's a lot more um like actual like diversity playing into a lot of the world of contemporary classical music a lot of people coming from different backgrounds like not everybody has to be you know, I mean, the classic thing is, is dead white males. That's like the big, that's the what composers are basically. And like, that's kind of finding its way into classical music where like, not a lot of people, it's kind of a lot more, um, it's a lot more mixed. It's a lot more of a mixed like pot of things. Like my regular collaborators of like five to 10 people, like if I were to pick like my 10 closest collaborators, I am like the only one of two white people. And, uh, I'm probably, depending on how you look at it, I'm one of the only males involved as well too. So, yeah. That's very interesting. Would you say that this um, interdisciplinary approach is almost redefining the idea of genre or are genres still very much, um, I guess, do they still exist within music or are we shifting towards a more fluid approach to the way that we categorize what we listen to? Yeah, yeah, I would say we're shifting towards a more fluid, if I would have to say, I mean, there's a lot of people that are not. And I think there's, there's, a, there's a certain validity. And like, if you want to do something that's something very specific, or fits within a certain kind of box, like you should still be able to kind of follow that. Uh, but it seems like the interest is more and more leaning towards a more fluid take on on genre and on style and all those kinds of questions. That's great. So the last question that I, I like to ask people is that uh, you're nearing the end of your PhD, you're finishing up. What has been one of your favorite parts or what did you enjoy most about the experience? Oh, about the PhD at Western? Yeah. Oh, it was 100% the, the, the TA experience. 
to be honest. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I chose Western, uh, and I, I think I, well, yeah, I wrote an article about this for something else a couple of years ago for Western, but one of my favorite things, or one of the reasons why I chose Western was because it was the only doctoral program that I applied to that had a guaranteed TA and a guaranteed teaching experience uh, mm -hmm. part of it. And I thought that was very curious considering like if you're going to pursue academia this long, there's probably some part of your life that's involved in education, whether it's being some sort of administrative role or teaching or mentoring or something like that. Um, so I taught ear training skills. I taught dictation for three years and then I taught, uh, I was an electronic studio assistant and that was definitely the most fulfilling part of the degree for sure was having that classroom teaching experience. I connected a lot with the students that I taught in those classes. Uh, they were really like, uh, that was like, yeah, really fulfilling in a number of different ways, so. That's great to hear. Thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on the show. If people wanna hear more about your music and your research and what you do, uh, is there some place where they can find you? Yeah, so, uh, all my handles on anything that I'm on is uh, my initials. So A-N and then music composer. So A-N music composer uh, or N music composer, depending on how, how you read it. And it's, uh, it's also my website. So A-N music composer.com. Uh, it's my email. It's all that stuff. So. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson, and my co-host was Michelle Krasovitsky. We've been speaking with Andrew Noseworthy, and this episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com or visit our website, gradcastradio.ca. You can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your lovely podcasts. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>